Hey, Bobby here. Welcome to Quotalist, where software sales leaders and professionals share ideas to help you master your mind, your business, and your time. Remember, when we embrace practice, develop awareness, and align our efforts, we can rise above the deal. We can live Quotalist. Hey, I'm Bobby Dysart, and this is Quotalist. Today's episode is sponsored by my podcasting partner, SalesCast. They offer revenue-first podcasts for entrepreneurs and sales leaders. You can catch me as well as founders, Colin and Chris, hanging out on Slack in their podcasting community. If you're interested, it's free to join. Just head over to salescast.co. One question trivia with my guest, Nate Nasrallah. Is that how I say that? You nailed it. What's your that? Nasrallah? No, you got it. Good. That feels really good. That's that's a good Thursday morning win. Uh, so Nate here, before I introduce him formally, he he used to work for a tea company um, back in a, in a past life. Uh, I'm a big tea fan, Nate. Mm-hmm. So um, I think this is one of our harder one question trivias, but we'll see. We'll see. It is multiple choice. So according to Chinese legend, a 16th century Indian monk named Bodhidharma once meditated for seven years then fell asleep for two years. Upon waking in the ninth year, he became frustrated at his loss of awareness, removed this, tossed it to the ground, and it soon turned into the first tea plants. Was it A, his fingernails, B, his hair, C, his eyelids, or D, his shoes? I think it was his hair. Nope. See his eyelids. <laughs> oh, yeah. That so that that's a tough one. Um, I uh, well, I did spend and eyelids a- are so gross. So yeah, it's really tough. There, I was there's a much palatable, more palatable thing, right? I was kind of like, man, is are, are all of Bobby's guests going to think that they're about to listen to some weirdo if he chooses eyelids out of all of the options? Uh, it, it was tough. It was a tough read. You know, that's, that's the source of the world's first tea plants, but Hey man, you, know, you learn I, something new every day. I thought, you know, maybe there was some like, you know, the myth of Samson where he loses his hair and then all of his power goes out from him. Maybe there was something where like the hair held the power and that was the secret to the, to the tea plant. I mean, I, I gave the other choices. Hair was my like little like tripper upper mm-hmm. and it gotcha. I'm sorry. Hey, that's all right. Um, well, we got plenty of good stuff to talk about ahead. Um, I will introduce you formally, Nate. Um, Nate's the founder of Fluent.io. Uh, that's a software that helps create committed champions for every B2B deal in your pipeline. He's a member of both Pavilion and Rev Genius, and his sales career spans over 10 years. You can find him on LinkedIn sharing content from interviews, coaching calls, and most importantly, his own experience helping buyers become champions. Nate, welcome to Quotalist. Thanks so much for having me. Good to be here, Bobby. Yeah, man. Um, I can't even really remember how we connected. I know it was on LinkedIn and um, you, you've just been giving so much to that community that I, I've been really excited to connect with you. Um, one of those things is your enterprise sales book. So we'll, t- we'll talk about that in a second. I'm really excited about it. Really, really great pr- product and, and a lot of good traction. Um, first I want to sort of ask you just a personal question. We're, we're in Q2. 
you know, the year is, is really officially ramped up. Um, do you mind sharing with the listeners one big change that's happened over the last year or one lesson, one big lesson you've learned this year? Yeah. So one big change is that I've stepped back into the founder role. And for me, it's kind of a, it's been a fun season getting back to the early stage. Cause I former founder went through the whole startup life cycle before. And what I would describe is a season of nostalgia almost of like, man, you know, there are elements to this that I missed. Um, I'm, I'm doing it a, a little different this time. And so here's the learning and I'll, I'll kind of go real deep for a second. Last time around, I had a co-founder named Brian, um, who I just built an incredible relationship with because, you know, building a business is hard and you go through so much together. And unfortunately, I lost him about a year ago to some mental health challenges. And so he passed away. And what I've realized is that the things that I remember about that first business wasn't revenue. It had nothing to do with a KPI, a quota, nothing to do with the exit. It was the time that we spent in Airbnbs working together and the relationship that we developed. And so this time around, what I have said from the start is that this is going to be a company about people, not products. Mm. And that's what matters. And so that I would say has been many years in the making as a point of learning, but it's, it's crystallized this time around. Damn, dude, you got me with that. I mean, sorry about his passing and, um, but it's, it's, you know, nostalgia is probably right up there with one of my favorite things Hmm. in the world. And to have this, like, you just really articulated well, the season of nostalgia, sort of the second time around and um, really focusing on people as opposed Hmm. to products, really like relishing those moments that you had with him in a new way and making sure that you're, you're relishing these moments as they come. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it's been a fun return back to the early days of company building. Oh, that's so cool, dude. So, so you've been doing it, what, five months now, six months? Yeah. Yeah. Um, since early January, uh, we kicked off development. So yeah, we're, we're, we're getting marching up to product launch and, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been fun being so close to just talking with users every single day to help us build the product. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you definitely said building a business with a co-founder with anybody. I mean, it's it's really tough to put it lightly. I I, I would consider it. Are, are you married? I am married. Yeah, uh, yeah. I would consider it a marriage with like a little extra hot sauce. <laughs> like, it's 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 just really tough. I mean, it's tough to do as an individual, let alone to get somebody or other people on the same page and to be able to like weather the storm together and to see the you know, light at the end of the tunnel in, in unison, mm-hmm. right. It's, it's, it's really challenging. So to kind of come back at it a second time around, I guess I'm just interested in like, w- where did that first seed start to grow again? And you're like, all right, I'm going to do another run at this. Yeah. I honestly, it came from this idea of scratch your own itch and it came out of the biggest challenge or frustration that I've always had one selling personally to building teams to sell. So after that first company, I built up an enterprise sales team for the company that that bought us. Mm -hmm. And the number one reason why we would lose deals or the moment when we would lose deals was always when our rep wasn't in the room. It was the result of a conversation that was happening inside the buying team. And we had no idea what was being said, no control over the message and things that we were trying weren't working. And so I was like, man, 
I got to try something. So really Fluent started as just me developing and trying to test out a way to create a champion, develop a message that would guide those internal conversations when we couldn't be there. Cause we, I mean, we would pour so much time and money and effort into training our reps only to realize like, dang, we have to have our reps train their champions on how to message their value just the same way. And if we're not doing this, I mean, it's, it's literally killing deals. So we got to figure this out. So Fluent came from one, just a bunch of manual testing with my own team to figure out how to do this. And I'm happy to go into more specifics. And then after saying that it was working, basically Google Docs was the very first version of Fluent. Yeah. We closed a million dollars on Google Docs. Mm. And so I started going to other teams and being like, yo, is this your experience too? Are you seeing this problem? And then I would share what we were doing and they're like, oh, this is really interesting. Like, I, I want to help weigh in on this. This could be something. And so it developed into a product or a company over time. It wasn't like, you know, a lot of people talk about this like glorious aha moment of like, so I was in the shower and here it was. And it just, you know, it was like me, it was a slow roll into realizing, oh, this is a, this is a company that every B2B team working on complex deals needs support from, as opposed to, again, it just started as me scratching my own itch. Yeah. You were like, Oh, this is really bothering me and I need to get to uh -huh. the bottom of it. Right. And no, you're right. Like I think so many people, um, myself included, I've had these moments where you look from the outside, you know, from the outside looking in at, at companies, you're just like, Oh well, yeah. He just had this magical moment and thought of this idea. And of course mm -hmm. it's great. Right. But no, it, it really does start. And I think you work with startups enough. You see that you see the sort of like humbling, scrappy, just like hacked together, solutions and ideas with a little bit of polish that just, you know, before you know, it, it's like, whoa, this thing has some momentum and people are really mm -hmm. getting a lot of use out of it. And it, and it, 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 a, it, it takes a lot longer than people expect and B mm -hmm. it definitely starts, um, a, a, again, a lot more humbly than, than I think we think. Oh yeah. I, I very much agree. Again, version one was just a blank Google doc. And that's how we got started. Very humble. You, you, you could, a lot of really cool things start as Google. <laughs> I, it's, it's funny. They, they do. I have met other founders who had a very similar story. Yeah. Um, it's very true. Cool. Cool. Well, we'll talk more about fluent. Um, you're launching here in the spring. I, I want to dive into, um, it sounds like just sort of a free version of your learnings that you went through, um, with regards to starting fluent and it's this enterprise sales playbook. You gave it away for free two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. You ungated it. So people don't have to, you know, fill out a form. They don't have to give you their social security number or credit <laughs> right. card. Right. Uh, it's, it's just free value. Um, before we dive into the, to the parts of it. And, and by the way, it's, it's awesome. And like, mm. I, I found myself just guzzling your Kool-Aid, like just cause it's, it's how it's like, you're in my mind and it's, it's well-earned. It's cause you've been in a lot of other B2B enterprise sellers minds, um, working on it. Um, but before we dive into that, like, I, I'm sure you were intentional about giving this for free and making it so accessible. What, what was that about? Yeah. I'm a big believer that you need to earn the brain space that you are taking up in somebody else's day. And for me, the best way to do that is just to help somebody give them something first. And over time, like you naturally return back to or gravitate toward the people that 
you're like, oh my gosh, that last conversation with Bobby, that was wildly helpful. I didn't even have to buy anything. When can I talk with Bobby next? You know, that you're setting up or creating this expectation that every time you hear from somebody, you're going to learn something, find something that you didn't expect. And for me, that's the best way to start off our relationship is to create a sense of surprise and delight. And that's why I was very intentional about not gating it because you're saying you need to give me something before I give something to you. And I think it needs to be the opposite way. Let your work stand on its own. And if it is truly good enough, people will say, wow, that was helpful. You know, I'll figure out a way to sign up. So I keep reading this stuff. Yeah. No, well said, man. Uh, Surprise, delight, and experience. That's really, really cool. Um, And you're exactly right. Again, I I was guzzling your Kool-Aid. I I can't agree with that um, statement, that perspective. Uh, more and more in my own, or anymore, I should say, with my own consulting. Like when I first started, I, I just meet with anybody, give them as much free advice. You know, I think maybe on the third or fourth call, I'd be like, "Hey, oh, should we, uh, should we maybe formalize this a little bit?" Mm-hmm. But the first two or three, it's just like, "Hey, let's let's see if I can even help you. Um, I will give you my perspective if you like it. Great. If not, that's even better because <laughs> mm-hmm. we just saved ourselves some time, right?" Um, so that's really, really cool. Um, and, and again, I can tell you put a lot of love and energy into it. So bravo. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. You know, when you're, you're working on developing something, there's always the thoughts of like, is anybody actually going to read this or like this, you know? So, so I, I very genuinely appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah. So, um, we'll dive into it a little bit. So you break it up into five parts, um, making the mental shift deal champion job description, creating committed champions, keeping champions engaged and enabling a champion's internal sale. Um, you know, the, the big piece that stood out to me right away is this, is this idea of buyer enablement, which you just mm. talked a little bit about. I really like that. That's sort of a, I think that's something that we've all experienced as sellers, like and by, by we've experienced, we've experienced buyers having to do stuff for us. Mm-hmm. That we're like, we want to think we're in control, but, but we're really not like, you know, it's, it's, it's a partnership that's dependent on buyers, mm-hmm. um, in so many ways. And so I love that, that you, you, you really spread this term buyer enablement around shed some light on that and, and what you mean by that. Yeah. So I, I kind of go into this idea of the Amazon memo and I use it as just one example to point out two very big points that I think are often overlooked in B2B sales, certainly in the context of a complex or an enterprise level sale. And the first is this, all of the moments that have the power to create or kill deals always happen in internal meetings, not sales meetings. Mm. There's something that happens, debate about a company's problems, their level of priority that's going on that creates or sets the stage for some type of project that ultimately will lead to investing in a product to support that. And when you think about that, what it means is that you have got to, as a seller, find and correctly frame a problem that one matters to the company at all levels, all the way up at a leadership level. And two, enable somebody to communicate that to everybody, because the difference between just like a regular, more transactional sale and a complex sale, isn't like the contract size, the you know dollar figure that you're investing. It's the number of contacts that are involved, the number of people that it's, in, it's influencing which means there are so many different people with so many different priorities, to-do lists, things that they're evaluated on. 
views of which problems actually matter. And you've got to deconflict all of that and cut through it with a message that the champion is going around to everybody and saying, hey, this is a big problem. We've got to do something about it. Here's the right approach that we should use. Oh, by the way, and then this is where the product comes in. Here's the product that can be helpful. And so it's this art of enabling somebody to communicate internally and lay the groundwork for the purchase. But if you if you notice, I talked about a whole lot of stuff that didn't relate to product features. Right. And that's the idea of buyer enablement is to say, have you worked with the buyer to create the environment where a deal can actually get done as opposed to what sales enablement is typically thinking about is how do we train, coach, enable our reps to articulate a product's value inside of a sales meeting. And what buyer enablement is ultimately about is saying everything happening inside the buying organization. Are you as a seller enabling a champion who believes we've got to do something about this problem to get everybody else to a place where they're on the same page, they're ready to move forward, and then a deal can actually get done after? Mm, Exactly right. I mean, what I really like about it is you're confronting this reality that we we just sort of dance around as sellers, that it's like a lot of information gets exchanged, a lot of decisions get made inside the four walls of our customer, not inside the four walls of those customer meetings that we are a part of, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, whereas normally, right, like you, you said it right, right? Sales enablement is about arming the salesperson, making sure that salesperson is as informed, as helpful, as intelligent, as experienced as possible, But again, there's going to be so much that goes uh, on outside of that person's control. We've got to make someone at the, uh, at the buyer level um, or or within, within the buyer's organization um, as prepared, if not more prepared Mm -hmm. than that seller. Well, I think it's a good point too. And it's part of why I've been looking forward to talking about this topic with you particularly is because when you think about what causes so much anxiety in the life of a sales rep, it's often a lack of control over their quota. They're so focused on making the number. They have this target hanging over their head. They're like, how am I going to hit it? And what buyer enablement is about at the end of the day is this idea that sales reps don't ultimately close deals, buyers do. And your job as a seller is pretty similar to that of your sales enablement team. You're providing content coaching, enabling them to get done a job that matters to them. And so as a account executive, the mental shift that you're making is realizing like, okay, I'm actually like a buyer enablement team of one. My job is to help this person get what matters most to them. If I can listen to understand that, move them from some type of problem to a payoff, show them a path to do that internally, then great. I just made their work life so much better, sometimes even personal life so much better as a result. And I can focus on that as opposed to all of the other things outside of my control in a deal. And that's where I think so much anxiety comes from in the life of a sales rep is trying to control the things that you can't control. That's a recipe for internal disaster. Oh, listen up to that part. <laughs> anxiety, right? Anxiety is for real, right? Like that's, that's the real stuff. And it does come down to this, like um, this helpless act of like trying to control things that are just not in your control. I really like that. Like uh, that mental shift, you know, this isn't all on me. What I can do is help influence, um, or help assist basically this buyer Mm -hmm. that wants to do what he or she wants to do either way. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and, and that, uh, that small mental shift will cure a lot of anxiety, you know, so, so, so well said, um, and definitely suited for this, for this show and this audience. Um, I want, I want an example. So I think another thing we, we talk about a lot with, with either closing deals or losing deals, right? When we talk about closing deals, it's like, Oh, I killed it. I did something great. Like I got him right. Or got her right. When it's losing deals, it's like, Oh, the customer messed up. They like, let me, you know, let me hang in at the, at the altar or whatever. Right. I want you to, do you have a good example? And this could be from early, you know, early days, whatever of where, you know, that you got a deal because the buyer kicked some ass, the, the yeah. buyer did something great. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, working on a um, deal. We were uh, providing marketing services to this very large real-time streaming platform. So um, massive multinational company. And I had been working with their um, head of performance marketing for a while. And at a certain point in the deal, he was like, okay, I think the next step is we need to um, bring in our CMO. Um, That way you can answer any questions directly. And um, hopefully we'll be on the same page, final kind of check that we need to get for sign off. It's like, okay, great. So of course I'm nervous coming into this meeting, like CMO, what are they going to ask? What do I need to be prepared for? I'm running through all of the different scenarios. And she gets on the call and she's like, Nate, it's really good to meet you. I've heard awesome things. And I'm like, oh, well, that's very nice. Thanks. And uh, so we chit chat for a little bit and she's like, okay, well, um, great. We're looking forward to working with you. And I was like, well, me, me too. But you, do you mean like as a customer, you know, this is what I'm thinking <laughs> now, what I'm saying, but like, are you referring to like yourself as a customer or are we still in this you know, sales process? And what it came down to is that, um, so the name of the champion I was working with is Tony. Tony had put in so much work and effort behind the scenes, taking our conversations, translating that into different materials, relaying that with the CMO over the course of months that by the time I actually met the CMO, then it was a small chit chat. And I did zero selling because Tony had already developed the deal to a point where literally two weeks later, we were working with and flew a contract through procurement and we were good to go. And that, that's the best case scenario. Right. And and that's a very extreme example of where I, in that moment, could not say that I closed the deal. Right. Right. That was not a result of my salesmanship or brilliance. That was the, that was the fact that we had an awesome champion in Tony. It's beautiful. And it's exactly, I think what you're preaching and yes, it's an extreme example, but it doesn't have to be is what Mm -hmm. I would say a and B like I'm, in my own sales efforts and my own sales instruction right now, I'm, I'm really big on this word ideal, you know, ideal customer, ideal experience, ideal deployment, right. Ideal um, value, right? Like if we can chase ideal, we may not get there, but we'll, we'll get damn close. Right. And Mm -hmm. so if we can sort of hold this Tony situation up as like the ideal standard, Mm -hmm. right. Like, no longer do we want to chase us getting a seat at the table and putting our best foot forward on the line with the CMO, mm-hmm. you know, high stake situation. And it's, it's up to us to get this thing over the line. No, no, no. We want to help Tony get this, all this work done beforehand. So then we, when we show up, it's like, all right, the CMO just needs to make sure that Tony wasn't you know, talking crazy that, uh, that Nate and his team are, are, are as legit as, as he's, as he said, um, like th- this should be the new shining example. That's right. And the thing is like, Tony was very, he was very intentional 
about the message that he was relaying, the timing of that message. He had done this many times before. He was incredibly experienced. And so what was very interesting after the fact is I called up Tony and I said, like, walk me through everything that happened that I wasn't aware of, because this is very interesting. I, this meeting didn't go in the best of ways in, in the way that I expected. And so because that was ideal, what I, I heard him talk through, we then later actually did a roundtable uh, together where he shared his process of selling something internally as a buyer with, it, with um, our community to talk through, like, this is how I develop a narrative, get executive buy-in. And it was, it was very interesting because then with that picture of the ideal process, it became a framework for other sales reps to use and say, okay, if I have a buyer that is not as experienced as Tony, how can I enable them with a clear message that executives will care about? And how can I help them push this forward internally? And so I'd like your point around the ideal, because if you have a clear vision for that, then you can more easily replicate that in other scenarios. Right. Right. And, and it really is um, a game changer. It's really enlightening when you see somebody like Tony, mm-hmm. it totally shifts your perspective on, um, on deal champions, influencers, the people that are in the deal, right? Like um, I, I, I notice it in my own, in my own sales efforts now for, for better, for worse. Like I, I find myself quickly just identifying a person like, hey, has this person done this before, mm-hmm. right? Is this a person that that is confident, right? And like can, can gather a room together and create change because the other thing that I think we don't acknowledge enough as sellers is this is hard mm-hmm. and, and by hard for, for the buyer, right? It's hard for Tony, right? It's hard for the Tonys of the world, especially the Tonys of the world that haven't done it yet. And mm-hmm. so it's not a slight when you run into somebody that, that you just don't think again, that just hasn't done it before. Yeah. If they have done it. They're just not quite as confident, or maybe they even have an egg on their face from, from where it didn't work out. And we'll start. Oh, yeah. right? so we, here, here's a recent story um, about this. So a lot of the research that we did in developing our product, wasn't just talking with sales reps, but buyers, because there are two different types of users. Yeah. So a lot of what I spent time talking to different B2B buyers about is this art of internal communications and times when it didn't work out. So when you really wanted a deal, like you were putting your heart and soul into it and it didn't work, why? And there was um, one director of sales ops who worked for a kind of a 3D modeling software and they had a newly hired CRO and they didn't use any type of sales engagement platform. Um, Historically, a lot of their lead gen had been more inbound. They were trying to shift and develop more outbound. And so he's like, okay, we need sales engagement. I used outreach at my other company. I'm gonna go to my CRO and say, hey, um, did a demo with outreach, got the latest updates. We're go- going to invest cool by you. And so in his mind, he was like, well, what CRO won't approve a purchase for, you know, a just kind of a leading name, like outreach. That is a staple of a lot of teams. And CRO was like, no, we don't need that. We're not buying that. And he left that meeting, like dumbfounded. He's like, oh my gosh, like how, how am I going to stand up an outbound motion without any type of sales engagement system? And our CRO thinks it's totally unneeded. And what he realized after a course of different, a couple of different internal meetings is that the CRO was hearing from the CEO and the board net revenue retention. This is your focus. And so the whole idea is that the CRO had one set of priorities that had nothing to do with outreach. And so my, my guess is that the sales rep from outreach on this demo, talking with a former customer, loving it, like, this is going to be great. I can take this, you know, we're going to get this done soon. 
they're like, great, I have an easy deal in my pipeline. But because of what's happening internally that they can't see into, they, they actually have an uphill climb in front of them. Yeah. So buying is a hard job too. Oh, big time, big time. And again, it just helps to, yeah, I just had a story like this happen um, the other day. We, we were literally at the two yard line. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we, and this, this talk about like a sophisticated buyer. They had, they, they had like created like a 15 page slide deck um, that was for their like buyer buying committee that they had, right? Like, um, I'm not going to say the company, but they're, they're a well-oiled well machine, a very um, prominent uh, tech company. So mm -hmm. they know how to buy some software. They know how to deploy it. And if anything, we were stealing their process. I was like, this is great. I'm just going to go share this stuff with my, with my other uh, prospects because you guys are really taking us through a really cool experience. Um, and we're charging through it, feeling really good. They're like, hey, this is great. This is on, on target, right? Um, pass through like two different security things. Like, like we're, we're right there. And then get this call. Hey, it's not over, but it's delayed. It's delayed a quarter. Might as well be over, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and we don't really get the real story. And I could tell, like the, the it was basically the procurement guy telling us this, and our champion didn't tell us this. And I'm like, there's there's something more here. There's something more here. And fortunately, we had a good enough relationship with um, some other influencers in the deal that we got the skinny. And the real skinny was. They've had a couple other deployments that just didn't go well over mm. the last six months with that same team. And it's just like there, and, 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 and by the way, like I empathize, I'm like, wow, man, like, yeah, there's scar tissue there. And, and by the way, I don't want to be that right. Like mm -hmm. if in six months, you're not using the crap out of this stuff, like I'm, you know, shame on me, shame on us. I'm going to take that personal. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really glad too, that we, that we've actually surfaced this and, and now we're working towards a resolution. Um, but it just goes to show you, you know, it's not like, it's not anything we did. It's not necessarily anything we could control. Um, and like, it's, it's a real challenge and something that they, they should be a little shy about um, their, their next couple of deals. Oh yeah. I mean, buyer's remorse, buyer regret is mm -hmm. a real, it's a real thing. And it can be a real blocker based on past experiences, oftentimes by people that you may not be talking directly to, but that can still be a blocker in the deal. The other takeaway that I had as you were talking is you were talking about influencers or champions in the plural. And that's a, I think a very astute point. Oftentimes we talk about the champion in the deal, mm -hmm. but ideally, yeah, I wanted to bring it up. You actually yeah. named three, you named three um, personas, champions versus influencers versus coaches, mm -hmm. right? You want to talk a little bit about how you do the distinction between each? Yeah. So when I, I think about the profile of a champion, there's incentive, like there's something in it for them. There's a personal win that's keeping them tied directly to the outcome of the deal. Second is influence. Like they have to be able to affect change or push for change to get the deal done. And then third information, like that hard to find, hard to research type of deal, in, deal intelligence that's going to help you move it forward. So all three things have to be present in a deal champion. However, if you just have, let's say, incentive and information, so you can't actually affect the outcome because there is no influence, that makes you a coach. You can provide good intel and you could help develop the deal, but you're not going to be able to drive it forward on your own. Whereas an influencer is somebody that can influence it, but they have no incentive. And this is often kind of a tricky one that you need to pay attention to is if there's no 
or at least not a clearly stated what's in it for me, for a particular person with outsized influence in the deal, that oftentimes is where a blocker can come from. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I really like that you get down into the nitty gritty of defining those three personas and the exact traits of each. Um, because with, without definition, it's, it's easily confused, right? You'd be like, Oh, it's, I think this person's my champion, but it's like, um, no, they're just a coach, <laughs> or mm-hmm. just, just impl- which again, necessary, <laughs> necessary mm-hmm. humans in the deal and the buying process. Um, but I agree to, to, to have a true champion, you need, you need all three of those. That's right. And then I'd, I'd add on that by saying that a champion is somebody that meets that profile and has demonstrated certain behaviors or evidence that they are acting for the deal. And so if you have somebody, they could be a potential champion, but they don't become a truly committed champion until they are working with you. Things that you can test for and see very clearly, okay, you are in fact moving this deal forward. Yeah. Again, and I'm a huge fan of like putting things out in the ether with, with um, your prospects to sort of just invite truth <laughs> about mm-hmm. the situation, right? When you're talking two, three, four hundred thousand dollars of software, it's either going to make somebody's like year and they're going to do something really well that they'll, they'll jump a promotion, they'll, they'll leapfrog a certain position, or it goes disastrously and like someone could get fired. Like mm-hmm. when you're talking about that much revenue and that much behavior change, like again, it's helpful to like speak that out and sort of gauge the prospect's interest. If, if he or she's not really like cognizant of the weight of the project mm-hmm. and more specifically the opportunity to advance their career and they're excited about that, mm-hmm. you might have a coach or an influencer. That's right. And one of my favorite things to do with a champion is what I'll call a pre-mortem. And it's going through and trying to press them on what are all of the reasons why this will go off the rails, either before it gets done or after you come back three months later and you're like, this sucks. This is not going the way that we wanted to. Like, tell me why, why would that be the case? And then you can break that down together because burying the reality or the truth behind something doesn't help anybody, doesn't, doesn't help you. It doesn't help the champion. And so to your point, just putting it out there and often seeing your role as, as the rep in the deal to call the question first is immensely helpful. One to protect against, you know, that downside risk or the buying regret. But on the flip side, to your point, when things go really well, let's say it is a a pretty large, you know, half a million dollar investment, a lot riding on this. Some of my favorite memories are when the champion comes back and says, hey, um, everybody's been impressed by the way that I was able to develop this internally. It's become such a big priority. I'm actually getting a promotion and they asked me to develop a job description around this. You work with tons of people in this role. Could you help me? And I've actually gotten to help write job descriptions for champions because they were stepping into a promotion after, after the deal. And after a couple of times of this happening, I was like, oh yeah, this is like my own personal KPI. Like sure there's revenue and there's quota and things, but like number of job descriptions created, that's a fun one. As wow. Well. Yeah. That's incredible. And again, that once you go through that, um, you should be able to hold that up as your standard. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, Nate knows he hasn't done his job until somebody's gotten promoted. That's right. Go back to your point around the idea. Like that is, that is the ideal outcome right yeah. there. Yeah. And again, you do that enough. 
I think, I think you'll hit quota quota. You get enough promotions quota will take care of itself. That's right. It's, it's, it's a byproduct of doing these other things as opposed to the, the focus. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, well, the last point on this, I really like, and I've used this for a long time. Um, but you, you, you articulate it very well and you weave it throughout your content and the enterprise sales playbook. And it's the idea of using champions words, not your marketing teams. Mm-hmm. I like to use the term vernacular, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you can reflect exactly what these folks are saying, um, or, or the group of folks as a whole, like that's your best sales, um, ammo over anything. Oh yeah. That's exactly right. Like the example in the playbook is let's say you're selling marketing software into the CMO's organization. A manager may be talking all about kind of content workflows and geeking out on product functionality, but the best thing you can do to develop the deal is use the exact same language that that CMO is using in an executive update in a board meeting. Clearly she has some type of priority or agenda on her mind. And let's say she, for her, it's capital efficient growth. Like that's her, her call it trigger phrase, the language, the vernacular that she's choosing to use. The more you can frame, for example, generating more SEO content as the path to capital efficient growth, the more you're going to tap into a narrative that people are already sold on internally. And so you're now just converting the willing because everybody's like, well, I'm told that my job right now is to create a path toward capital efficient growth as opposed to convincing the skeptical of, well, tell me why this product is actually worth it. It totally changes. It changes the game when in a conversation, in the follow-up materials, that's what you're talking about is the way that the buyer thinks about and frames their problem. Everything becomes so much easier, less friction throughout the sales cycle. Yeah. It's, it's, it's literally like German to English. It's a completely different <laughs> language. It's a completely different thing of like, Hey, here's my tech. Do you like it? Or, Hey, you're actually chasing after this opportunity and I'm going to help you get after it. Right? I'm going to help you make the most of it, overcome these hurdles. And those hurdles and those opportunities are exactly what they've described. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's an art that, especially in the enterprise employees internalize languaging, the ability to frame a certain request around certain vernacular that others will resonate with in order to maximize the probability that that's approved. And as a sales rep, you can language the sales process as well. Yeah. And I think it's an important point. A lot of people think, oh, they hear this and, oh, this is sort of, okay, this makes sense. I'm just going to go out and do it and, and no big deal. This is a craft. This mm-hmm. is a skill because by default, I guess, like humans, we're just not good <laughs> at hearing what was said. We're great at hearing what we heard, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and so you have to practice um, almost one of my, one of my, um, favorite sellers ever, he's now a VP of sales at a company called revenue.io. And mm-hmm. I, I couldn't put my finger on it when I met him. I'm like, why is this guy so special? Why is he so great? And I found it. It's because he spent his first seven years of his career as a journalist. And so talk about a magician at like teasing out language and then reflecting it back precisely in the way that it was intended. Mm-hmm. He's just a master of it. So he, he didn't know crap about enterprise selling, but he was a wizard at languaging, at asking questions, reflecting mm-hmm. back. And, and now in like short order in like four years, he's just a, a master. I, uh, I think you're talking about Ryan Valancourt. Ryan Valancourt. Yeah. Yeah. And we connected on this very topic. 
he, he has this idea of the challenge email. So after you end a sales meeting, how are you playing back their challenges and their words in the email? And I, in the playbook, I write a, a bit about this idea of affordable email. Are you using language that is going to get you pushed up and pushed around the buying circle to the people that you want to talk about, tapping into what is already in their mind? And I, I think starting a career in journalism is a fantastic way to get ahead in sales because you aren't listening to confirm or select certain keywords that you've heard about a product. You're just there to find the story wherever it leads you at the end of the day. And that's what, it, that's what good discovery is doing. That's right. And to like, again, to speak to the craft part, like what he credits, like how he built that skill so well is he said he would um, record notes from his interviews and then write like, uh, you know, an article on the interview. And in his early days, people would call him and say, I didn't say that. That's not what I said. That's not what I meant. Like you took that toll and they would be pissed. And mm-hmm. so like he learned in short order, like, whoa, what I thought they said and what they actually said were two different things. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll um, take this as a moment to tie it into the product. It's part of why we call it fluent. It's because we're converting a conversation into written content for the business case. So it's, it's the buyer that's driving the content, not the sales team. And it goes back to this idea of in journalism, like the words people choose to use to describe a certain experience are very intentional. They didn't use other words because that doesn't fit their belief, their opinion, their perspective. There is a very certain and very specific set of words that they use because they hold meaning to them. And if, if you're using something else, you're communicating during in a totally different message in a different way. So the buyer's words is, I mean, I can't overstate just how important it is. Man, yeah, I'm with you. And wow, full circle. Ryan Valancourt, good good buddy of mine. How, how did you guys meet? Uh, LinkedIn. It's amazing yeah. the breadth of people you can meet on LinkedIn. Yeah, he was, uh, um, I guess I was his first software manager. And yeah, we've, we became fast friends. Uh, we, mm. ran a half, we ran a half Ironman together. Uh, last year. And then we ran the LA marathon together just four weeks. Oh yeah. Which, which uh, big Ironman and triathlete over here. So which race did you guys do? Okay. Okay. We did the small one in Palm Springs. It wasn't an Ironman branded one. We wanted to, Mm -hmm. Um, it was like an alpha race one or something, but um, his schedule is impossible. He's got, you know, he's got two kids and he's not in sales. Those are rev.io. So that was the one we could do. We may do, um, Iron Man proper in in the fall in uh in Mexico in uh, Cozumel. Okay, right on. Have wanna... you so what what you said big triathlete like have you have you done a full? I have. I've I, I've done a number. i I think my favorite one was I I signed up with uh, a buddy to do one called Challenge Barcelona. So it was off brand, but Iron Man came in and three months before the race, turned it, bought the event, and turned it into an Iron Man event. And so for less than half the cost of a full Ironman, we got to go run a beautiful race course. We were swimming in the Mediterranean, biking up and down the uh, Catalonian highway there. And yeah. we did it all under the Ironman brand, but we, we paid the generic entry fee. So it was pretty sweet. That is pretty sweet. Nice, man. Great. You, you got any more coming up? You know, I, I got into ultra running a little bit more lately. So I've been, I've been running more than I've actually... Um, been on the triathlon circuit and it just kind of changing it up. I, I got, um, big into triathlon for about 
10 years. And, um, I guess, I don't know, I guess I was just looking for a change, started doing a little bit more running, a little less logistics, a little less equipment. What's an ultra? Like what, what, what distance? Technically anything over a marathon is considered, um, an ultra. So my, uh, my last one, there's this, um, nature trail that runs outside of our house and it goes all the way from, um, Denver into a town called Franktown. It's about 45 miles. So I did that, uh, and, and then kind of like made my own. Um, so I've, I've kind of been going off, off the, you know, regular circuit lately. As, as you do sometimes when you're, when you're, it sounds like you're searching for something, brother. I love it. Yeah. You just need to change a pace some, sometimes. Indeed. Well, Dude, this is this has been great. Let's I guess let's end with um, the latest on Fluent. You're launching soon. Um, where can uh, people find out more about it? And yeah, just just give us the latest because obviously I'm a fan. Um, the name, the 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 idea, the strategy, the the vernacular piece. It's it's awesome. Yeah, thanks. Well, we're uh, we're getting pretty excited. The the team's been working super hard, so we have uh, the product rolling out uh, by June 30. Beta testing going on earlier. Anybody's interested in helping out test the product, um, we're always looking for for more people to weigh in, share feedback as well. So you can check us out at Fluent F L U I N T dot I O. Um, you can see exactly how the product works there. You can uh, the playbook is also posted on the blog there. So lots of good information on Fluent Cool man. Well, yes, I will be a uh, an early supporter as I am now. And again, great work on the uh, on the sales playbook. Keep me. Keep me updated. I'm curious, like, what's the latest number on that? You you over three thousand yet? We're uh, yes. Um, so we are over three thousand. Last night we got a bunch of new people checking it out, and uh, it's it's fun. One of the things that I was curious about was like, would people open this or read this? And so far, people spend on average twelve minutes in each session um, that they hit it. Which I'm like, okay, people are you know they're they're sticking around because it's. I mean, if if you go check it out, if you haven't seen it yet, it's long. That's for sure. Um, but it, it must be uh, worthwhile if people are hanging out for a dozen minutes there. Well, yeah, tw- 12 minutes in 2022 is like two hours in 1986, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's, a, that's uh, yeah, you're, you're really keeping some eyeballs. So, so well done. And, and yeah, it's, I remember the first time you sent it over to me, I clicked in. I was like, oh, all right, this is the thing. I got to, I got to dive in later. Mm-hmm. Um, but last, last night when I was really, um, diving in it it reads well like it's 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 not you know once you sort of take a minute to to just go through it with some you know strategies and methodology like um you can just pull out chunks of value pretty quick um so you presented it really well it's super clean um you got the table contents there on the left um so yeah anyone listening go check it out i promise you'll get two or three gems that that literally will help you that same day awesome Well, thanks, Bobby. Super fun conversation. Appreciate it. For sure. Thanks for being here. If you enjoyed today's show, please go and support it by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can also subscribe to the Quotalist weekly newsletter by going to Quotalist.io. Remember, when you embrace practice, develop awareness, and align your efforts, you can rise above the deal. You can live Quotalist.